Uh, I'm, I'm Jeremy, I'm one of the ministers here, and uh, I, I do want to say if you're visiting this morning or if, or if you're you know, just in um, for, the, for the Thanksgiving holidays, I hope you'll hang out, give us a chance to talk to you, um, say hi, and spend a little time with you this morning. Now I do, I have a story for you this morning, and it, it is a Kentucky story. It's about a man who risked his life and the valiant efforts of others to save him from his mistake. And I should warn you, too, it's a bit of a long story, so hang in with me, okay? This is the story of the cave. Now, on January 30th, 1925, a man walks toward the cave with a kerosene lamp in his hand. He hangs up his jacket, and he ducks into a five-foot opening. And the inside of the cave is narrow, so he has to drop down on his hands and knees, crawling through a passageway filled with jagged rocks and choking dust. Then he slides down a chute that he had cleared out months earlier. Now, there's, there's no daylight down here, just the glow of his lantern. He's 100 feet in, and now he reaches the turnaround room. And it's called that because this is where even experienced cavers will say, no thanks, and they'll turn around. Because to continue forward means going through the squeeze. The squeeze is a gap in the stone of only nine inches. You know, nine inches, that's like less than a foot long. Sub, you know. To get through, he has to have his arms down by his side, and he has to breathe out all the air in his lungs so that he can make his torso smaller and squeeze forward. And bit by bit, shallow breath after shallow breath, he disappears into the hole. The rocks and these sharp gypsum crystals, they snag his clothes and they hold him in place. But, you know, using his feet like little pedals, he pushes on through. And finally, it opens up on the other side. He grabs the rope that he'd hung there earlier. He rappels down a wall 10 feet. And this is as far as he can go. And so, he pulls out his tools and he gets to work. There's another opening. It's too small to fit through. But he is chipping away at it because on the other side of this opening is a magnificent and otherworldly cave that will be irresistible to tourists. He's been doing it every day for months, carefully removing rocks a bucket or two at a time. And so for him, it's all just routine. He squeezes further into the gap, his arms pinned to his side, his feet squeeze in as tight as possible. And about halfway through this gap, the light flickers. His lantern is low on fuel. He'll have to go all the way back to the surface to refuel it. And so with a sigh, he begins to push his way back out to... to, to shoulder, um, or his shoulder is shoving the lantern along. And then crack, darkness. He has knocked over the lamp, and it's broken. He's in total, pitch black, perfect, no light at all, darkness. But not for the first time. You know, he can make his way back by touch alone if he has to. So bracing his feet in the darkness against the cave wall again, he continues to push himself out. But... His foot isn't pressing against the cave wall. See, in the darkness, he can't tell that he's leveraging his foot against a loose rock protruding from above his legs. And as he presses against it, the rock breaks loose and comes crashing down on his ankle. He reacts, he tries to jerk his feet out, and suddenly a gravel, a lot of gravel, falls down onto his feet, his legs, his chest, His arms are pinned by his side. His foot is stuck underneath a large rock, underneath a pile of gravel. Only his head is free to move. 
He tries to push forward. He cannot. He tries to inch backwards. He cannot. The ice and snow slowly melting drips on his forehead. Drip, drip, drip. He is stuck. He is alone in the cave, unable to move, and in absolute darkness. And this is Sand Cave. And this man is Floyd Collins. And this is our zero. Now, let me tell you just a little bit about how we got here. You see, the the longest cave system in the world, you probably know this, is here in Kentucky. It's Mammoth Cave. And near Mammoth Cave is a little Kentucky town called, fittingly, Cave City. And this is where Floyd Collins grew up. He grew up a caver. You know, at, at the age of six, he was out exploring caves. In 1910, at the age of 14, he was hired by a geologist to guide him through the caves there. I mean, Floyd knew his way around a cave. He also grew up during something that's called the Kentucky Cave Wars. Now, if you're from Kentucky, maybe you grew up learning about this. I had no clue until I started looking into the story. This is a real thing, the Kentucky Cave Wars. Um, So cave tourism was such a big thing during the early 1900s, and there were so many entrances to Mammoth Cave that the competition was fierce. So, I mean, some people even hired actors to pretend to be police, uh, and then they would warn people away from rival cave entrances. Some people would just go beat up anyone who tried to open a new cave entrance in town. But Floyd was determined. He knew if he could find a good cave entrance, the income could change his life. And when he found this one, he knew this is it. Just past where he was stuck, the cave opened up into this huge crystal-filled cavern that would have people lining up to visit. The only problem was he would need to tunnel a bigger entrance to it. And that's just what he'd been working on when he got trapped. About a day later, Floyd heard a voice calling his name from the darkness. You see, it turns out some locals had gotten worried about Floyd. They found his jacket hung up outside the cave, and so they sent in this 17-year-old boy uh, named Jewel Estes. He made it to the turnaround room, but he was too scared to go through the squeeze. So he yelled out to Floyd. Floyd yelled back, "Ah, yeah, I'm here. They now knew Floyd was down there, trapped. And one by one, each of them tried to make it through the cave. Each of them got to the turnaround room, and they couldn't make it through. They were terrified of getting stuck in the squeeze. And so one by one, they all returned to the surface, defeated, with Floyd as stuck as ever. Word began to spread, and before long, there were dozens of people gathering outside the cave, wondering what would happen. Now, while all this is going on, meanwhile, in Louisville, Floyd's brother, Homer, he gets a call. You know, your brother is trapped in a cave. So he jumps on a coach, and he heads back to Cave City. Now, as he arrives, he sees a crowd standing around outside the cave, and he immediately headed down inside. He scrambled down through the tight tunnels on hands and knees. He reached the turnaround room, and he didn't hesitate. He let out a deep breath, and he squeezed on in and finally emerged out the other side. There was Floyd. So he slid down, and he met his brother. What Homer saw was not good. Floyd was really badly trapped. For every scoop of gravel that Homer moved, more fell to take its place. Plus, Floyd was lying in a pool of melted ice water that was about 54 degrees, and he had been there for 38 hours. Finally, it was almost impossible to actually work on removing Floyd. Uh, This is a picture of kind of how he was situated in there. And you can see the space was so tight that if you went in feet first, 
It was impossible to lean past your own legs to work on the, the rocks. But if you went in head first, you were essentially working upside down, and you would have to slide backwards and up to get out of the cave. So Homer called back up for food and coffee. He fed his brother, who still, I mean, all his brother can do is open his mouth. And he got to work on the rocks. And he worked for hours. After eight hours of grueling work, he hadn't made much progress. But he was exhausted. He was in pain from the work itself. Homer had to go back up and rest. But as he climbed out of the cave, dirty skin hanging from his fingers, he was greeted by a strange sight. About 100 people had gathered. They had set up a little camp there at the entrance. And they were all full of ideas on how to rescue Floyd. Dynamite! Amputate his foot! Send down a contortionist. These were all real ideas. Um, and despite their enthusiastic ideas, no one else was actually brave enough to go, go down through the squeeze to Floyd. So Homer rested, and he re-entered to move more rocks. It is now hour 71. No one has made it to Floyd other than Homer. And Homer himself, he is exhausted. He can't keep this up. Other people would volunteer to take food and drink down to Floyd. But when they got to the turnaround, they'd chicken out. And they'd leave the food stuck in cracks and crevices. Some would even lie, saying, yeah, I delivered it to Floyd. He's doing great. Hour 73. Things would change within a few hours as two new people would actually make it down to Floyd. Now, the first was William Skeets Miller. Okay, I put it in quotes because that's how it's written. I don't know if that's a nickname. I don't Skeets. We'll call him Skeets. He worked for a Louisville paper, and he came down to get the story about Floyd. He actually braved the squeeze and made it all the way down to Floyd. And he saw how dire the situation was, and he wanted to help. But his reporting actually did something even more incredible. You see, Skeets shared Floyd's story with the entire country. This story had everything, fear, hope, life, death. And William Skeets Miller's story was printed in every newspaper from L.A. to New York City. This was also the time when radio was becoming more normalized. And so it allowed people to get hourly updates on what was happening with Floyd's rescue. Everyone tuned in. Everyone wanted to know, will this man make it out of the cave? Not long after that, another guy reading the reports, hearing the radio news, arrived as well. His name was Robert Burden. Now, he was a firefighter from Louisville who came down to save, to rescue Floyd. Now, unlike the, the hundreds of others who tried, he was also able to reach Floyd. And he came up with a plan, rope. He said to Floyd, I think we can get you out of here with rope, but we might pull your foot off. Now, Floyd, he was hallucinating at this point. He was seeing glowing angels delivering him food and stuff like that. And he said, pull my foot off if you have to, but get me out. Now, there were mixed feelings about the rope plan. Some thought it would pull his foot off. Others thought it might stretch him out and seriously damage him, maybe even kill him. But there just didn't seem to be any other option. So Homer, William Skeets Miller and firefighter Robert Burden, they climbed back down with a rope along with three other men stationed throughout the cave. They tied it around Floyd's chest. They gave Floyd a strong sedative, and on the count of three, they began to pull. The rope went taut. The gravel shifted. Floyd began to scream. Pull harder, yelled Burden, and the force of six grown men pulled on Floyd's body. But the cave would not let go. 
Worse than that, the rope pulled Floyd's chest up against the rock ceiling. His screaming intensified. This could kill Floyd. Homer, his brother, realized what was happening, and when the others wouldn't stop pulling, he mustered this superhuman brother strength and yanked the rope back out of their hands. The rope had failed. Exhausted, on the verge of fainting, the men stumbled back up out of the cave. There were now 200 people milling about, asking useless questions and giving useless advice. Floyd's situation seemed helpless. But then, someone new showed up on the scene. Floyd's fellow caver friend, Johnny Gerald. He heard the news about Floyd and he showed up to help. Now he was disgusted by the crowd. He was horrified by the rope attempt and he made his way down to the cave. And when Floyd realized that Gerald was there, his hope was renewed. See, here was someone who knew caves. Here was someone who could save him. And so Gerald got to work nine hours in the cave. He was able to remove enough rock that Floyd could wiggle parts of his body for the first time in 97 hours. And they started to think, this might work after all. See, Gerald knew that inexperienced people down here might cause a cave-in. So when he exited the cave to get some rest, he ordered for no one else to go down. Now, here's the problem. Gerald and Homer were too exhausted to keep working. Skeets had to go file his stories with the paper, and the crowd wouldn't allow Burden back down there after the whole thing with the rope. So Floyd spent the next hours alone in the dark again. I believe we can get to him, Skeets told his readers. I believe we can save him yet. I know it. Skeets was back down in the cave. This time, he had a chain of people passing him supplies. They're stringing up electric lights, and he had a new rescue method to wedge a crowbar against the rock and use a jack on wooden blocks to lift the stone up off of Floyd's foot, freeing him. The first attempt failed. So did the second. But then the rock shifted. Skeets later wrote that Floyd yelled, keep going, fella, it's coming off. Now keep in mind that to turn the jack, Skeets had to lean forward, reaching down into the tunnel through the gravel, and at the very edge of his reach, turn the jack to lift up this enormously heavy rock. It was agonizing, back-breaking work, but it was working, inch by inch. With each turn, the stone shifted. His body rushed with adrenaline. His fingers trembled. His back screamed. Sweat burned in his eyes, and his heartbeat sped as one of the wooden blocks began to slip And the sandwich of blocks began to teeter sideways. And suddenly, the rock settled back to its place on top of Colin's foot. Skeets tried again and again and again. Failure. Weeping and collapsing, Skeets hung a light bulb around Floyd's neck for warmth and made his way back out of the cave. What he found outside were soldiers. The National Guard had arrived. You see, while Skeets slept, a new man took charge, and this was Henry Carmichael. He was the general superintendent of the Kentucky Rock Asphalt Company. And this guy really knew his stuff, and he believed the whole situation had been handled so poorly. So he sent two of his men, two expert cave technicians, um, I guess, to investigate. Now, generally, a lot of caves in Kentucky are very stable, but Sand Cave is another story. 
See, all the campfires from the crowd outside, this huge kind of party that was going around waiting for news, their campfires had raised the temperature of the ground around Sand Cave. The snow and ice were melting, and they were softening the dirt and mud in the cave. And the two experts could see how dire it was. The ceiling was beginning to crack and droop. They could hear the rumble of sliding rocks. But still, they could also hear Floyd's desperate cries and moans from up ahead. He was begging for a drink of water. Unable to leave those cries, one of the men went down the squeeze to give Floyd a drink. And that's when the man realized Floyd didn't really want a drink. He wasn't asking for a drink. He just didn't want to be trapped alone. So as fast as he could, the man scrambled back up the squeeze to the turnaround room just in time to see the tunnel close. The path had collapsed, and the only sign of Floyd's existence were his soft sobs from the other side. Please don't leave me. Now Skeets, Gerald, and Homer, they awoke from their rest to hear the terrible news that the cave tunnel had collapsed. They spent the next few hours doing everything in their power to open it up again. For every inch of ground they made, the cave collapsed more. It was hopeless. Then the governor of Kentucky got involved. He said, the purse strings of Kentucky are open. Take this blank check and bring that boy back out alive. Floyd's been down there 142 hours. So here's the plan. They're going to dig a new shaft down to Floyd. So they brought in heavy machinery and excavators, but they quickly realized they were useless. You see, the fumes from the machines would travel down into the cave and suffocate Floyd. So they began to dig by hand. It would be slow. By their estimates, it would take another 30 hours to get to Floyd. And so it was a race against time. How long could Floyd survive down there alone? So they got to digging. 30 hours passed, but they were nowhere near Floyd. Another 30. Hour 250. Hour 300. Hour 350. 411 hours. Floyd had been in the cave when they finally made it to him. 17 days with little food and water, extreme cold temperatures, but maybe, maybe the melting snow had provided enough water to drink. You know, maybe the heat of the light bulb had kept his heart warm enough to pump blood through his body. The newspapers were circulating old stories of miners who had survived underground for long periods of time. Churches were sending donations to rescue workers. Readers were mailing letters of encouragement. There was a, a Chicago fortune teller, and she sent sketches of her coffee grounds that had settled at the bottom of her mug in the shape of a heart. Proof, she said, that Collins was alive. The whole country was watching. They eased into the cave, and there was a sparkle of light. You see, Floyd had a gold tooth, and it was shining in the dim light. It didn't move. Floyd was dead. Three days. That's how long Floyd had been dead. Three days was the difference between life and death for Floyd. The rescue did not come fast enough. And you may be wondering, well, what was the point of all that? We've been here a while, Jeremy. Why tell the story of Floyd just dies in the end? Well, well, here is the point. Death comes for us all 
We're all Floyd, trapped in the cave. And no matter how much we struggle, or who we know, or how much money we throw at it, death claims us one day. You cannot escape the cave. As Benjamin Franklin once famously said, in this world nothing can be said to be certain except for death and taxes. And just like Floyd, every effort expended, every rock moved, it's all wasted. We all die. We're all trapped in sand cave, just waiting for our day. If you don't think that you're that affected by death, try to imagine for a minute a world without it. Flash back in time with me to Genesis. In Genesis, you have the Garden of Eden, and things are good. Humanity gets to walk with God. They take care of the world that God's created. In in response, the world provides them with everything they need. And, of course, the big thing is there is the tree of life. As long as you eat of it, you will never die. And we know the tragic story of Genesis 3, that Satan, as a serpent, tempts Adam and Eve. They eat of the forbidden tree of knowledge, and they sin. They're cast out of the garden, away from God and the tree of life. And with sin, Adam and Eve have something new to consider, death. It recolors and infects all of creation. Imagine for a moment that you're Adam and Eve before sin and death enter the world. What is there to worry about? Nothing. That's almost impossible to wrap our brains around. And then in a world, it all changes. They're out of the garden. And death is a reality. Suddenly there is so much to worry about. How will we keep ourselves safe? What if we don't have enough to eat? Imagine the very first night they don't have enough to eat. And for the first time ever, the question comes up, who reaches for the only bite of food? See, before death, there's no question of who would have and who wouldn't have. But now, now, There's a reason and a drive for me to choose myself over you. Because with the coming of death, this new thing enters into the world. Survival, self-preservation, self-interest. And it's in the pursuit of those things in extreme or broken ways that we find ourselves led into sin. You can immediately see death and sin working together in the Genesis story. Cain and Abel sacrifice. God is more pleased with Abel. And Cain is driven by the fear that he'll lose his place, that someone else will supersede him. And so led by his self-interest, this new desire to be better, to get ahead of others, that sin and death brought into the world, he kills his brother. And what happened with Cain and Abel, still happening today, It's very tempting to look around and see how I compare to everyone else. I look at other people my age. I see how they're doing. I don't want to fall behind in life. In fact, I actually, if I'm honest, I feel best when I'm doing better than my peers. And really, I've got to do better because I want to be a success. I want my life to have significance and meaning. So my days become hectic and busy. I become competitive with people at my same school or within my sport or my major or my employer. I become combative with people who compete with me or threaten me. And if morals get in the way of getting my grades or being better than the person next to me or having enough, it's so tempting to ignore them and look the other way. And the fear of death and self-interest that comes from it. They push me. They push me to outperform, to outlast, to have more, to fail less, to experience more pleasure, and leave behind a legacy so that no one will forget me when I'm gone. 
And Satan will use those desires to cause humans to do terrible, terrible things. So, we're all prisoners of the cave. We're all captives of death. And plenty of people have done everything within their power to prolong life, but no one escapes it in the end. Now, Paul, Paul the Apostle, he had never seen anything different until one day on the road to Damascus, he met a dead man. See, Paul knew that Jesus was dead. But here he was, alive. And just like that, Paul realizes there's a way. There's a way out of the cave. Death doesn't get the final say, and Jesus is the proof of that. In 1 Corinthians 15, um, you know, the Corinthian church had plenty of problems and struggles. Most churches do. One of their problems is that some people were saying there would be no resurrection. Uh, In verses 12 through 19, Paul kind of tears into this idea, and it kind of culminates in verses 20 through 26, where Paul writes, In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Paul says that Jesus' resurrection is not a one-time event. It is the beginning. It is the first fruits. You see, Jesus' resurrection broke death. It, it put a crack in death, and one day that crack will widen. The same way a small crack in a window can expand and destroy the entire thing, death will be destroyed entirely. That's why Paul, at the end of the chapter, writes this in verses 55 through 58. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It's awesome. It's wonderful to know that death is defeated. But, but Paul wants us to see what that means. In verse 58, he writes, therefore. And I, I have these wonderful memories of when I was a, a child growing up in my little church in Mississippi. Um, and there was a, a Bible teacher there, Perry Jinkerson. He would say, when you see the therefore, you have to ask, what's the therefore, therefore, right? You know, when you see therefore, it means because of all this, then you should. And Paul lays that out for us. He says, first up, because death has been defeated, you can stand firm. This means that you can make it. Sometimes it will be hard. Sometimes life will be hurt. Sometimes it will be sad. And and that's no doubt the reality for some of us here right now. But your life goes on forever. It stretches out into eternity And even if today feels impossible, your future is promised. It is bright and beautiful, and it is secure in God's hand. So stand firm, endure, 
It doesn't mean that we don't hurt or mourn or weep, but it does mean we don't give up. We don't give up hope. We don't surrender to an enemy who has already been beaten. Stand firm. And the moments when you feel like you can't, whether it's the the pain of a broken relationship or the, the agonizing discord of a home in chaos or the crushing weight of failure, look around this room. Look at your church family. Find someone to help you stand. You remember Skeets? Skeets Miller? Um, the guy from the newspaper, he tried to help save Floyd Collins. Well, while he was down in the cave, working on the rocks, he got his interview with Floyd. I want to read you some of what Floyd said. These are Floyd's words. Monday was the first day when strangers came back to me. I kept working around whenever I felt strong enough, thinking maybe I could twist myself free. But each time, I could hear pebbles falling into the deep hole right behind me. It caused me to shudder. I kept thinking, what would happen if the rock above me would fall? I kept trying to drive my mind to something else, but it wasn't much use. I couldn't do much to help those who came to help me. But I knew a lot of people were willing to do all in their power. This gave me courage. Tuesday morning, I thought to myself, four days down here and no nearer to freedom than I was the first day. How will it end? Will I get out or... I couldn't think of it. I have faced death before. It doesn't frighten me, but it is so long. Oh, God, be merciful. I want you to tell everybody outside that I love every one of them, and I'm happy because so many are trying to help me. Tell them I'm not going to give up. I'm going to fight and be patient and never forget them. You go out now, but don't leave me too long. I want you with me, and I'll keep helping all I can to move some of this rock. But if I die, I believe I would go to heaven. In the worst situation... In agony, utterly alone, Floyd stood firm. He held on to hope, knowing that even if he perished because of Jesus, death could not hold him forever. The second thing Paul tells us, to give yourself fully. Give yourself fully to the Lord's work. In January 28th of this year, uh, Christine Wellenstein, she won the California Mega Millions jackpot. And you might be wondering how much that is. $426 million. It's a lot of money. And she said, I want to give back and support local and global-based initiatives, and my team is in place to help achieve those. The real impact of my life's work begins right now. What would you do? You know, what would you do with the money? How much would you give away? Here's a question. Does the amount of money you receive, would that affect how much you're willing to give away? You know, it's kind of interesting. There's lots of people that say they would give money away if they won the jackpot or, or came into a lot of money. You know, they give it away to charity and family and that sort of thing. But it actually depends largely on how much money we're talking about. If they won $1 billion, 33% of Americans would give half of it away, they said. But if they only won $1 million, that number drops to about 17% who would give half away. You know, it tells us something about people. It tells us something about ourselves, right? We're happy to be generous as long as there's plenty left over for ourselves. It's easy to give it away if it doesn't actually cost you anything. Scarcity and desperation, they have the opposite effect, right? They make us go to great lengths just to get a little. I mean, if this life is all you have, well, yeah, you better take care of number one. You better get yours. This is all you've got. 
It's like the $1 million. You can't give too much of it away because there's just not a lot to go around. But what if you didn't have $1 million? What if you didn't have $1 billion? What if your money just never ran out? You could give and give and give and give and give and give and still have plenty. And if your life never runs out, you can give yourself fully. You can live selflessly for others. Give your days away to them because you know there's always more and the best is yet to come. So you give yourself fully. In Acts 20, Paul is saying goodbye to the elders of the church at Ephesus. They're very special people to him. And just listen to what he says in verses 22 through 24. Now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Paul's life is worth nothing to him. He can give it away because he knows what comes next. Paul's not going to run out of life. He's going to inherit forever life. What this means is that we, we here in this room, we are free to love fully and sacrificially without needing to own or defend or advance ourselves against others. It frees us to donate ourselves in love. I can put the needs of my neighbor ahead of mine every time because I know my life is ultimately secure. You know, we just spent the last uh, month looking at our missionaries who across the world, they're giving their lives for others. What wonderful examples of setting aside their own comforts and desires in order to give themselves fully to God's work. I think of the story of Brant Botham, who, we don't have time for the story this morning, but, you know, he hugged and forgave his brother's murderer in the courtroom because of his faith. You know, that's the sort of thing you can only do when you know that death doesn't win. Now, I don't know exactly um, how each of us might be called to stand firm and to give ourselves in the face of death. But, but here's maybe something that's practical for you and I today. In Luke 14, 7 through 11, Jesus tells a parable. And, and basically, you know, the message is, he says, in social situations, take the lowest place. Now, this isn't a small, simple thing. You know, giving up chances to sell or promote ourselves among our peers and choosing instead to point out other good, others' good work can have real and lasting consequences for us. Maybe it means that we get passed over or we don't get ahead. At the least, giving up praise involves a loss of self. But simple acts of humility like this, they are opportunities for us to lay aside our own lives to love others in sacrificial ways. You may remember how close they were to saving Floyd from the cave. How many days? Three days. Three days. They were three days too short of saving him. Three days was the difference between life and death. Now, I don't know everyone's story here today. I, I've gotten to know some of them. But I do know this. Three days is the difference for you two. The difference between life and death. Jesus died on the cross, he was buried, and three days later, he rose again, and he left death in shambles. So don't live your life as if death gets the final say. 
Stand firm and give yourself fully. If you haven't followed Jesus or confessed him as your savior, man, we would love to talk to you, pray with you, help you in any way we can this morning. We're glad you're here. We're glad, we're glad we can share in victory over death together. Um, if there's any way we can help you this morning, let us know as we stand and sing.